Welcome back to the 37th edition of Living a Whole Christian Life. This is Dr. Jim Schrader, and I hope everyone is doing well as we sit here tonight in my clutter closet, as I call my podcast studio. And so we're going to continue our series on the social dimension, and we're going to come back to the golden rule and really what the golden rule means in our society today. You know, I think about this a lot. It's easy to say that we should treat others as we want to be treated, but how we operationalize and apply it to daily life is really the challenge. I think that's really the crux of the social dimension and where we're going to go in much greater detail. So to begin to really strive for this standard, to strive for, again, what's the most important social biblical verse that exists, we really have to start with how adults treat each other. And I think this is interesting. I think a lot of times we get focused on how we as adults treat the kids or vice versa, how kids treat adults. But in the end of the day, I would argue that in order to really truly understand the golden rule and to really set the stage for the golden rule, we have to begin with how adults treat each other. And some of you might be asking, well, why is why would that be the starting point? Why would that be the really the beginning of how we understand this dimension? And I have, really have two kind of arguments in this direction. One is that how adults treat each other provides a model for all others to emulate, especially for the younger generation, right? It really kind of sets the stage towards what's appropriate when it comes to people that are of comparable experience and knowledge and really kind of sets the playing field in general for the way that we should consider our relationships with others. So that model is really key, how one adult, whether it's a spouse or whether it's a coworker or whatever, sets the stage for how relationships should occur. The second why, kind of relatedly, is if two able adults can't treat each other in an equitable, respectful, unconditional, positive regard kind of way, it's very unlikely that the relationships they have with others, whether again it's kids or someone older than them, will have the degree of balance, health, and mutuality that is beneficial for both people. You know, I would really argue again here, it's when you think about two people, kind of an equitable frame, the way they treat each other really kind of sets the stage for what's appropriate balance and boundaries and health and and how do we work together, you know, in compromise and collaboration so that ultimately this relationship is beneficial for both, both people. And I think one of the challenging things about the golden rule is the fact that, you know, when we think about loving someone, right, we often think of the golden rule in many ways is kind of equitable or synonymous with the idea of loving someone very deeply. But the reality is that it really isn't, right? So loving someone isn't synonymous with the golden rule. And I might, let's say, really care deeply for a person greatly. I might really truly want the best for them. But it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to treat that person as I would want to be treated. Or as I heard this about a year or two ago, there's this idea of a golden rule with a twist, which is, or even being treated the way that I would want to be treated. Whatever way you kind of interpret the golden rule, the reality is that we can often love someone and have such deep, deep care and concern, but our treatment of them may not necessarily look and appear in the same way. And one of the examples I use, and I've worked with a lot of parents over the years, and, and to some degree, I think this applies to all of us as parents, but I've worked with a number of parents over the years who acknowledge that they have a really high level of dysregulation. They struggle to maintain, you know, control their frustration. And again, all of us get angry at times and all of us say things not quite the way we want to or react too strongly. But, but these particular group of parents really acknowledge that they struggle mightily to not feel enraged and dysregulated when things occur in the home. 
and it's a chronic issue. And what happens is, is that over and over and over, it's not that they don't love their kids greatly. It's not that they don't believe in the golden rule and have great intent for their parenting. Some of you listening out there may kind of really identify. And again, there's times where I think, gosh, like I identify too, because the choices I make really don't echo the love and intent that I have. But, you know, thinking of this example, this is kind of another situation where this idea that of, you know, being really dysregulated as a parent, I can have absolute love for my child and great intent, but that doesn't necessarily equal great treatment of my children or others around me. So here we go back. Go back, I think, what are ultimately the three hallmarks of the social dimension and and really the hallmarks of the golden rule. One is that we truly have to have empathy, meaning, again, we try to understand what it's like to be in another person's shoes. But two, we have to, with that empathy, and have responsiveness to what we perceive, what we really feel like is going on with the other person that's important. And three, once that happens, we have to reflect ourselves and constantly seek to grow from the reflections that we have, right? And God's design of the social world is predicated on this sequence, empathy, responsiveness, and reflection and growth happening millions upon maybe even billions of times throughout our lives. And so no one's perfect. Again, and this is, I think, one of the most challenging thing in relationships is it's so intricate, so complicated sometimes. Sometimes you think you're working so hard and it's just not, well, it's not working out the way you want it to, right? So whether it's you're making clear mistakes or whether you're just trying really hard and there's missteps or you misperceive things or others perceive it differently, all of that's part of it. But the big question really here is, do we continue to err without the intent or effort to go forward in a positive way, right? Do we just continue to make mistakes over and over in relationships, continue to communicate in ways that are not helpful, not beneficial, not loving, not the golden rule? And we just keep doing this over and over and over. Or when we err, do we work to come back to those three components that I mentioned? And ironically, by the way, if you think of the spelling of error, E-R-R, we come back to those components, we think of empathy, responsiveness, and reflection and growth. So ironically, when we talk about error, if we're erring with great intent and we have empathy, responsiveness, and reflection and growth, well, then that's perfectly where we want to be. But if we err without intent, without acknowledgement, even without awareness that we're making mistakes repeatedly, well, you know, this is where it's challenging because when this happens, relationships keep crumbling, right? Relationships, or even if they don't crumble, they're really strained. Communities globally who really repeatedly err on the social dimension just don't function very well. All types of communities, they are often in strife in many different ways. And the reality is that wars, and I don't just mean wars within our families, I mean wars between our countries, wars within our, you know, cities and all over the place continue when we don't honor those three key components. On the flip side, when our relationships do mirror and do focus on empathy, responsiveness, and reflection and growth, they not only improve and they not only become really rich, even with the challenges that we're always going to have, but they also really mirror our relationship with God. And I think that this is the key, that the closer we align ourselves with God's design of the social dimension, again, the social room of our Christian home, the more we align and really understand what it means to live out the golden rule, the more that the relationships we have with people 
really start to align with the relationship that we have with God. And so what we're going to talk about today, and, and as we continue to translate the golden rule into our modern world, is a chapter in my book of holiness, again, holiness with a WH, the unified pursuit of health, harmony, happiness, and heaven. And the chapter title is Partner Bill of Rights. And this was actually speaking to kind of the cycle of abuse, but it was my attempt to really kind of operationalize what does this golden rule mean when it comes to relationships with your partner, whether, you know, uh, wherever it is, whatever partner you have, again, adults, how does this play out? And so I'm going to talk about some of the keys here and the, the, the full list, the full partner bill of rights is actually in my in the book itself. And so if you're interested in checking out the full thing, you can find it in the chapter that we're speaking of. But I'm going to go through some key ideas behind this bill of rights as we operationalize the golden rule. So the first one is, I have the right to be treated as a human being, equal in worth, even though different in roles. When I feel disrespected or made to feel stupid, I have the right to be heard about the way I feel dehumanized. If I continue to be treated poorly, I have the right to seek out advice and counsel as needed. It's interesting. I think that a lot of the movements across our world from the beginning of time actually have a lot to do with this particular tenant here. And I'll take the movement, the feminist movement, you know, moving away from all the politicization of it, moving away from all of the viewpoints that you may have of different ways, whether you think right or wrong, whatever. I, I kind of want to just get down to the basics and say, I think much of the feminist movement initially came out of this simple idea that females felt they weren't being treated equal in worth, even though, of course, our roles can be different. And there was a sense of kind of rising up against that. You know, I mean, let's think about this. It wasn't until 1920 that females gained the right to vote. It wasn't until 1972 that Title IX, which allowed for female sports to have an equitable uh, platform for male sports, came to being. It wasn't until 1981 that the first female came onto the Supreme Court. And of course, it wasn't until 2021 that we had our first female vice president in the United States. And there's an interesting story that I heard a ways back when talking to my predecessors and actually my mom about this recently. And she was talking about how my great-grandmother, who grew up near Troy, Indiana, on a farm, at that time, she she was kind of pretty progressive in the sense that she went through college and married rather late. She got her teaching degree and, and went forward to teach for a few years. And this was back in the late 20s, early 30s. But at the time when she got married, she could no longer teach. She was The, the laws or the statutes or the precedent at that time wouldn't allow her to teach at all. Now, this later, of course, relaxed, but when it relaxed, what happened was that those who were married could teach, but once they got pregnant, they could no longer teach at that point. Um, And there were different reasons why that was the case. And I think about all these things as a male myself. And I just think, again, moving away from all the politics of this, imagine that just because of your genetics, something you had no control over, that all these areas that I mentioned, you were basically told these are not privy to you. You were told that you couldn't have jurisdiction, you couldn't have these rights, simply because of your genetics being a female. And I think when we boil it down, we recognize, okay, so it makes sense that no matter how we feel about the different roles we have in our lives, that we as adults should have the right to autonomy in these areas that we speak of. As long as our autonomy doesn't infringe upon another human being, um, as long as it doesn't cause particular problems in our society in ways that are very clear, should have the right to go teach if I get married, right? Should have the right to vote. So that kind of pertains to that first tenet that I said. The second one here 
Second idea of partner bill of rights is I have the right to be treated as an adult, not as a child. As an adult, I have the right to make decisions about what I can handle and information should not be withheld from me on the premise that I'm not strong enough to handle it. I will make that decision. And I think why this one's really critical is that when we hold the opposite ideal here, we hold the opposite premise, it enables this false notion of kind of a weaker sex or or just even a weaker partner. You know, it basically says, I know what's best for you, not you. You don't know what's best for you. I know what's best for you, and I will treat you in that way. There's a phenomenon called the Pygmalion phenomenon where basically I kind of exert my influence on you and I say, look, here is your ideal self and this is what I think you need to do, even though you may have very different vision. And and certainly that doesn't work well. And the flip side is actually called the Michelangelo phenomenon, which says that, you know what, I might not fully agree with what you see as your ideal self, but I seek to support you and help you flourish. This is kind of this idea here that, again, I have the right to be treated as an adult, not a child, and go forward with that. The third premise on this partner bill of rights is I have the right to feel safe in my relationship. If you do anything that violates my security or I feel threatened in any way, understand that I have the right to seek safety for myself and my children with those I trust. And, you know, this really kind of gets into what are the three basic needs or vulnerabilities of humanity. And those are, we all have a desire of a sense of competency. That's the first. We all have a desire to have a sense of belonging or being loved. But the third one, and this pertains directly, is that we all have a desire to feel safe, right? Safe in our physicality, safe in our relationships, safe even psychologically. And anything that threatens that is just simply against the golden rule. We have the right to safety. Number four, I have the right to coherent conversations and coherent answers. If you say something to me that does not make logical sense, I have the right to ask questions until I feel that a reasonable, sensible answer is given. If you're not able to provide coherent answers, understand that I will seek out counsel and advice from close friends or family that may be able to. And I think one of the challenging things about this is that on one side, we are all entitled to our own perceptions and emotions. And no matter what they are, no matter how different they are, those should never be taken away. That's that's an essence of psychological control we'll get into later. But at the same time, We also, when it comes to another human being, must be reasonable in how this is communicated and impacts that person. And so while we're privy to our own ideas and thoughts or whatever else and perspectives, when it comes in contact with another human being, if it's not reasonable, then it's really not honoring them. It's really not empathizing with who they are in a way that is how God ordained this social dimension. So I think it's so critical to understand this. Number five. I have the right to ask any questions about your actions or behaviors at any time. Although you are not bound to share all of your thoughts, temptations, or other odd or uncomfortable ideas, you, as my significant other, are bound to share what you did and why it occurred. If you do not give satisfactory answers, I have the right to continue to ask until answers are provided, even if you're annoyed by the questions as they occur. If satisfactory answers are not provided, know that I will not be able to trust you as long as they are not even if I work to forgive you for what I know. And this one here really is all about transparency. Transparency is one of the key key aspects of trust. In fact, there's really three key aspects. We'll talk a little bit more about another one, but the three key aspects are transparency, which goes along with accountability, authenticity, and the third is unconditional positive regard for another human being. 
if you lose one of those or multiple of those elements or those are reduced in a relationship, then it's really difficult to have a sense of trust. And in the end of the day, if transparency is not there at a reasonable level, trust at its best is going to be precarious. And at its worst, it's just simply going to be non-existent. Number six, I have the right to share my insecurities, worries, or concerns at any time, even if it involves something that occurred in the past. Although I promise to try and not flood you with these and work to resolve my own struggles and those around past issues, I have the right to let you know when I'm feeling unsure or uncertain about the status of our relationship. If you disregard or scoff at these concerns, I have the right to bring them up again until I feel that you adequately understand me. And you know what? In the end of the day, we've talked about empathy and responsiveness a lot. This idea here is that empathy and responsiveness are really difficult if we don't try to understand the why of what a person does and who they are. If we simply look at the behaviors, if we simply look at the personality, but we don't try to understand the context, the difficulties, the anxieties, the experiences, maybe the trauma or whatever, it's going to be really, really difficult, again, to have the empathy and responsiveness that we need. Number seven, I have the right to not be blamed or pulled through the mud for mistakes that you have made. Although I'm willing to hear about areas in which I have contributed to the problems we have, I have the right to not be attacked or shamed for the errors of your ways. I do not deserve to be the scapegoat for your sins. And the reality here is that often as a scapegoat, it's the reactive blaming. You know, there may be context that talks about why I did something I did, but in the end of the day, I am responsible for that decision. So while I may not like the things that you've done that I feel affected by, I simply cannot blame you for the decisions that I intentionally make. Because the reality is that that in and of itself is not accountable. And it's really not honoring the idea of being adult, of being a human being the way that we should be. And finally, I have the right to apologize when you make mistakes, just as I should continually seek out forgiveness from you when I go wrong in my ways. When you do not apologize for your mistakes or outrage, understand that I will naturally feel bitter and that although I may not like this in myself, I will feel less likely to want to do the same. Again, just like transparency and very much related to the same thing, Accountability is all about trust. So the rest of these are on in my book, Holiness, again, the chapter of Partner Bill of Rights. But at the end of the day, we're going to continue to talk about translating the golden rule into everyday life. But in order for us to really seek out the golden rule, we have to look at our relationships, especially with the adults around us, and ask ourselves, are we truly honoring how we would like to be treated or how they would like to be treated? Is that what we're seeking to learn? This is Jim Schrader. Be holy, be whole.